Welcome to the Rise Network podcast show, a podcast dedicated to help you reach your dream lifestyle through investing in real estate. We're going to be sitting down with new, intermediate, and experienced investors to talk all about real estate and how it has changed their lives. If you're looking to scale your portfolio or even just get into real estate investing, you're in the right place. Make sure to tune in. Hello, everyone. You are listening to the Rise Real Estate Investing Podcast with your host, <laughs> oh, it's me. <laughs> I've, already, I've already lost it with your host, Austin Yay. And Mayu, what's going on, everybody? Austin's still exhausted, clearly, from our event on, was it Tuesday night? I think everyone was just like, it wasn't even like we were hungover, we drank too much. It was more so just like exhausted from like talking. It was 5 like- p.m. until I think we probably left the venue at 10.30 or 10.45 p.m. So that's already yeah. five hours. And I've heard people were there until 11.30, 12. So yeah, yeah. Um, long time I got home, it was like 1 a.m., man. We went for a late night dinner, I guess, right after. And then by the time I got home, it was 1. The next day, I was just like, I was out of it, man. Like half-ass productive. It was like just a terrible day. But I think we've all recovered. It was a great event. And I think, you know, for anyone that, that came out, um, and I was talking to a couple of people about this, like me and Austin on the way there, we were like, oh, man really don't want to do this, really don't have the energy for networking. But then you get there, you get in a room filled with other real estate investors and it just kind of like energizes you at the same time. Right. So don't worry, you guys aren't alone. And I know a lot of people feel the same way, but coming out to these events kind of, uh, it, sh- it showed like, I don't know, Austin, you can talk about what you learned from the event, but like I learned exactly how many people are sitting on a good chunk of cash and just kind of waiting to see what kind of happens with the market. Um, the number one question I kept getting asked was like, what's next? Where's the next market? Where are people going to and stuff like that? And I was just like, man, I'm still trying to figure this shit out myself as well. Uh, don't necessarily have the answers, but how'd you find the event Austin? Yeah, no, the event was great. It was great connecting with people. A lot of first time, I'm not going to say first time investors, first time people joined their face-to-face networking event. And it was awesome to see people out there and, and meeting others again, connecting with like-minded individuals. And uh, hopefully they had a positive experience, see them again in future events. We were up to 180 people. Um, so that's pretty phenomenal. So we, we might need to find a bigger venue in the future as well. But shout out to the Maverick for hosting us. Um, shout out to Ishan and Sid for helping coordinate the event. Yeah, just had a great time overall. What I learned is I was just more interested in seeing what people are doing right now with everything going on in the market. And there's a mix, right? There's some people who are taking action, finding fantastic deals. For example, Alvin, who we had in our podcast before, he got a vacant triplex for, I want to say, what was that? Around 400,000 in Sudbury, completely vacant in a decent area. And he's just going to go fix it up quickly and refi, right? Did he end up closing that one or I thought he wasn't? Yeah, yeah. No. So when I was speaking to him, he's saying he was working on that deal right now. And those opportunities that you might get in this sort of market. And since it's a vacant multi, you can renovate everything and refi it within that three month mark before prices change significantly, or if they do or do not change significantly, whatever the case is. Um, But there are opportunities out there. And it's just like, it was, it's pretty inspiring to hear people still making moves um, because it makes me kind of second guess like, Oh, like, should I um, stop being overly prudent and search for these opportunities? Cause it's a deal I would have done, but I'm not actively putting myself out there to find those opportunities. And that's where the issue lies. Um, but great event overall. We're probably going to be having one, if not next month and the month after, we're going to be doing these much more frequently. Yeah. And, and the one thing that I'd say, like I, I posted something on my story where I've, I've seen people kind of like going up, down, up, down, up, down constantly in this market. And like they're just essentially the sellers, a lot of them are kind of holding the knife as it's kind of falling per se, right? 
um, instead of taking the highest offer that's coming to them. So if you're a seller in today's market, make sure you guys aren't um, being sticky to February's prices. Like the market is changing. Generally, a 1% increase in interest rates results in a 10% decline in prices, or it results in a 10% decline in affordability, which really just means prices, right? So keep that in mind if you guys are selling in today's market. Right now is probably the best time to be submitting conditional offers, um, offers that are conditional for a week, a week and a half, two weeks, right? You can even, if you're a buyer that's buying something for like your primary residence, uh, you can still make offers that are conditional on your primary residence selling as well. Um, that's something that I've been talking to some of my friends that are, that are kind of in that space about. But yeah, it's, it's definitely a good buying opportunity time. And, and some of you also, and I've been wondering if I'm being a little bit too much of a, of a, um, of a wuss on the sidelines, just kind of sitting around waiting. But I am looking at different markets now, starting to do my research, um, yeah. planning to book some trips out for June and July. I'm going I think to- now is the perfect time for an entrepreneur to enjoy yourself with things are slowing down. Just, yeah, just take some time to relax and you know disengage and then get back. So I've been taking a look at some headlines in the uh, uh, news articles. I know a lot of investors said avoid the headlines, but I think it's important to stay on top of at least what's going on or what's being said. It drives overall sentiment. And some of the information will be useful for you in your investing journey. So one that I'm reading right now, Powell says the Fed will not hesitate to keep rates until inflation comes down. Um, So Jerome Powell, he's the chairman of the US Federal Reserve. Basically, he made a statement saying that if it involves moving past broadly understood level to neutral, we won't hesitate to do that. We will go until we feel like we're at a place where we can say financial conditions are in an appropriate place. We see inflation coming down. So they're making a hard battle in inflation to taking a hard stance in decreasing inflation because we know the rates are insane out there. On Tuesday, he repeated his commitment to getting inflation closer to the Fed's 2% target and cautioned that it might not be easy and can come at the expense of a 3.6% unemployment rate. That is just above the lowest level since the 1960s. And he followed up by saying you'd have a strong labor market if unemployment were to move up a few ticks. I would say there's a number of possible paths to have a soft landing or a softish landing. So obviously, he's making it clear that they're going to do a controlled destruction of the economy (laughs) to bring things back to a neutral level of inflation. Because right now, the people who are getting hit the hardest are your middle class people who don't own assets. And any asset holder within the last two years, whether it was like stocks or real estate, you saw your wealth go up tremendously. But the people who got damaged the most are the people who are not asset holders, which is like a vast majority of the middle class and lower class. So um, yeah, I mean, it, it's quite clear that the interest rates are still going to be hiked up within the foreseeable future. They're taking an aggressive stance and they keep on saying softish landing so that, in other words, for me, that's, that's basically a controlled recession or driving it to a recession, um, but trying to control it. So it's not uh, a hard landing. That's what they were trying to do with inflation to begin with, I guess. But yeah. Um, for anyone that is out there reading the news and stuff, like the one thing I would caution people on is that the news is usually a, it's a little bit dramatic. Sure. Everyone knows that. Um, but it's also like lag data, right? Like I think we've been talking about a market correction for like the last month. And then now finally they start going, Oh yeah, there's been like a decrease in sales volume and like supply and all this kind of stuff. And so it seems, it, it makes it seem like it's happening twice, but really the news and stats and stuff like that is always a lag data. Um, yeah. The best way to know what's going on in your local market is honestly you just talk to realtors and investors in that market that are actively making offers, right? Um, they oh, 100%. Have- yeah. The headlines are completely lagging, especially when it comes to housing data. I almost never look at that. 
right? Because it's just complete bullshit. So I, I would just speak to, again, like the realtors who are doing deals and what they've been noticing. But I like the news in terms of figuring out what the Fed is going to do, what the Bank of Canada is going to do, because they're pretty transparent in their next move. The last thing they want to do is say something and go against it because they don't want to shock the market, right? Like they're pretty transparent in what their next move is going to be. Anyways, enough of this conversation here. We can go on and on about it. We're going to jump into today's podcast. And we have an amazing episode today with Mandy Branham, the JV queen. You might've heard of her if you haven't. She is a phenomenal real estate investor who's been in the game for a while and has joint ventured over a hundred properties. She goes into how she's able to find joint venture partners, how she's able to raise capital, some of the systems in her business. Because as you know, scaling a joint venture business is never easy. Mandy's story is extremely inspirational because she comes from a background where in her first JV, she didn't know anything about it, right? But she networked with the right people, connected with the right people, said the right things, and was able to grow her business into a multi-million dollar real estate portfolio. So you're going to enjoy this episode. Make sure to tune in. Hello, everyone. We are joint. Joint. I'm already getting into it. Joint ventures. We are joined with the joint venture queen, the JV queen, Mandy Branham. Mandy, how's everything going? So far, so good. Here we are, 2022. Crazy time. <laughs> it's been crazy. It's been a crazy, like, what is it? Four, five months, I guess, so far, right? But uh, Mandy, for, for any of our guests that, that don't know you, and I know you're pretty out there, pretty big public presence as well. Um, but for anyone that doesn't know you, uh, could you give us like a quick rundown on yourself? I don't even know how you do it quickly, but... <laughs> I'll give it a go. So my husband and I started investing um, back in 2007, dabbling, we'll call it. And I know there's a lot of investors that started out dabbling. And we got pretty serious in 2014. We joined a coaching program and really decided to focus in on growing our real estate portfolio um, because it was an industry that the harder we worked, the more direct our results were. And I really think that that's a, a key point for a lot of people. But so here we are, we're putting in the hard work, the efforts, the Saturdays, the Sundays, and we are seeing huge refinance checks going, shit, something's going on here. And as we continue to grow our portfolio, people kept saying to me, hey, the next deal you find, I want to come in on it. And if you find another one like that, let me know. And hence where the JV kind of came in. And I realized that I was finding more deals that I couldn't do on my own. And how could I help other people who are busy in their lives, want real estate, want to diversify, want generational wealth, but don't have the time, knowledge, experience, and they actually don't need to be an expert in real estate. So I turned to joint ventures really, really early on. And thank God that I did. I've had I have some amazing stories, some amazing people that have crossed my lives and only because of real estate. So that's me in a nutshell. Wow, that's quite the that's quite the rundown. So, so when you and your husband first got started in real estate, I know that was uh, quite some time ago. But even leading up to 2014, uh, before you guys started doing the joint ventures, how did you guys get started in real estate? Because even at that time, like, it, sure, like prices were cheaper, but people forget that like earnings and salaries and wages were also cheaper as well, right? So, you know, how did you guys get started in real estate? How did you guys discover like the entire like snowball burn everything? How is yeah. that process? So we put a second mortgage on our primary residence to be able to buy our first duplex. Larry, I always call him my break to me being a gas pedal, right? You can't go anywhere in a car if you don't have a gas pedal, but you're going to die if you don't have a break. So let's just keep that in mind. Larry's my break on the gas pedal. So I was like, we need real estate. We need real estate. So we put a second mortgage on our house. 
We went with Wells Fargo um, at the time, a United States second uh, B lender. And uh, actually in the crash, <laughs> the bank went under and we got sold to another institution. Our mortgage got sold because we were still paying our mortgage. So he had criteria as to what this duplex needed to be. He needed to be able to drive by it. It needed to be occupied. It couldn't cost us any money. We had to like all these things. So finally, when I found it, I was like, I found a property. And we did our own tenant turnovers. We did our own renovations. We did, you know, and so we had one duplex for seven years. And in 2014, that's when we refinanced it. And I had this $30,000 check in my hand. And I was like, wow, this is cool. One asset, seven years. I was like, but $30,000 doesn't supplement my retirement, Larry's retirement, one education for my kids, let alone a second education, vacations, all that kind of stuff. So I said, we need to do more. So I think it's okay to be hands-on when you first start because it's really good to be able to learn and get that experience and have those stories behind you and doing it on your own so that you're your own guinea pig. You're learning the lessons with your own bank account before you start to uh, you know, go and attract partners. Yeah, when you say definitely. Wells Fargo, were you guys like in the U.S. or something? Or was this like a time where they used to lend you? Okay. <laughs> yeah, it was a B letter. It was Wells Fargo that we lent with. And it was interesting when the um, when the crash happened and then we got a new mortgage, I called Larry and I was like, you're not going to believe this, but our mortgage payment just went down like by $350 because we've gone from 8% interest to like 4% interest, which was, you know, such a huge celebration day. Speaking of interest rates, the impact of interest rates, just, just right there alone, $300 payment difference. Um, anyway, so getting, getting further into that kind of discussion. So when you ended up buying your duplex, you said you wanted to buy more. Is that when you started exploring joint ventureships or did you still acquire a couple more by yourself before getting into that avenue? And what was yeah. that? When did you make that transition? When did it make sense for you to do that? Yeah, so we then moved houses and we kept the house that we had moved out of, right? Isn't that the, one of the easiest transitions people, you, you tell people, right? When you move, keep your house. So we did that. And we rented that house out and we got into a new house. So now we had two rentals plus our primary. And then we went to buy our third property and it was another single family home was like $130,000. And we went to qualify and we had some down payment key law or like some line of credits and stuff. But we go to closing and uh, our mortgage specialist was like, oh, well, you need to cash those RSPs. We thought we could just show that we had cash or capital. And then she was like, no, like, so three days before closing, we had to cash some RSPs, which was the down payment. They weren't going to let us use these HELOCs. And I thought, something's not right here. This is my gosh darn third rental property. I know people buy more. There has to be, um, you know, a system. There has to be specific people that know this kind of stuff. Enter into, I need, I need coaching. I need somebody to be able to teach me this kind of thing. And, uh, and that was October of 2014 is when we joined our coaching program and we did another single family rental at that time, but we now had tools and tricks and methods, um, mortgage specific mortgage products that we were going into to be able to do our first Burr property. And in three months, we bought a property and refinanced it, increasing the value by $50,000. And that got me a lot of attention in the investor world. And people then started to say, hey, who's this Mandy girl? What is she doing? Um, things like that. Gotcha. So you were documenting your journey while doing all of that? Or were you like heading to those meetups and there were other established investors there? 
a thousand percent meetups, a thousand percent. Cause I was like drinking from the fire hose. I was, what don't I know? And how can I learn it? And where are these investment groups and how can I go be part of it? And, and at one point, you know, you're not sure if you want to land on rent to owns or flips or apartment buildings or single families or whatever that strategy is. Um, and so I was still kind of like, not sure what strategy I was going to want to go to. And then I met Gary McGowan, Andrew Brennan, Quentin D'Souza, and they were all like, you got to go JVs uh, to be able to grow and grow fast. And I was like, Hey, this model, this model fits for me. It fits for, for, for our family. It fits for, you know, who I am and, uh, and the way we went. I'm sure when you first got started, um, you know, joint ventures as a whole, like it helps you scale up drastically because you're essentially leveraging other people's resources as well. Right. What were some of the pain points, the pros and the cons when you were building up and was it really just you going out to networking events, um, attracting, you know, other investors or was there a certain type of avatar? Like early on, what did the joint venture process really look like for you? Um, so the joint venture process was painful. The joint venture process was filled with a thousand questions. It was like this faith that I knew it could work because I had people in my industry that were doing it. But, you know, JVs, we would have two hour conversations. I'd have a list of questions like, that's a great question. I'll get back to you. That's a great question. I'll get back to you. What never wavered was the asset, right? And it was like, oh, well, how do we split profit? And how do we know who to pay for this? And those are all great questions. But the asset never wavered. I have a phenomenal duplex. I got it at a great price. So when the asset is so strong and the belief in the property is there, these little minor details, and I call them minor details. I call them legal jargon. You know, you want to look at my 26-page joint venture agreement. We can look at that. I probably don't know all the answers that you might have. But your lawyer and my lawyer might be able to connect to be able to go over it. And then I just, I got better. I got, I knew what questions they were going to ask. So I addressed it. I knew the bookkeeping, the accounting questions. So I kind of was able to address it. And my belief in the property continued to be this like, you know, ship in the darkness that just, you know, if this is where we're on and we've got this solid asset, you make money in the buy, buying the right asset with the right tenant profile you know, all this little stuff can kind of be secondary to the property that we are buying. And I was just very, so because I was so confident in the assets that I was buying, the details kind of just worked themselves out and people came along and learned with me. So I never went into this being like, I know it all. I was like, come along and learn with me. I don't know those answers. I was very vulnerable. I was very raw. Like, Shit, we ran into something. I've never done an external three-story staircase. Can you come with me while I learn? I've never dealt with a new sewer line from the road to the house. Come with me. I don't know the cost of this. I don't know how long it's going to take. But if you're willing to realize that I'm here, I'm putting myself um, you know, in the forefront of asking the questions and working with the professionals. So people just had a lot of confidence in me going and doing the journey with them. I think that makes a lot of sense. So... I'm at the stage in real estate where sometimes I look for people like, who do I want to JV with? And I see some of these newer investors who I know don't have all of the answers, right? Because I'm a bit more of an experienced investor looking at that lens, but I still would feel confident in being with them because of integrity, seeing their hustle, seeing what they're able to accomplish in such a short period of time and knowing they're going to do right by me, right? Like that's the most important thing at the end of the day. Um, so I think what you said there is extremely important because a lot of people think when they get into JVs, they have to know everything inside out, which is so far from the truth. Um, with your first joint venture experience, 
what are some things that went right from it? What are some things that went wrong with it? And what did you do to learn and adapt from that experience? So I'll even say what went wrong first. So I had three JVs walk away before the fourth one said yes. And the first three, one was my parents and, you know, there was a fire. Everybody got upset or got nervous and my parents led. Okay. So I had this asset that I needed a partner for, but I didn't have anybody. So I talked to another couple investors and they wanted to be hands-on. They wanted to be working partners. They wanted to come and learn alongside of me. And I had to say, this isn't going to work because my model is a passive investor. So um, along comes, uh, you know, I made a post on, on a forum and, you know, said, I've got this triplex. This is the deal with it. And another female reached out and she was like, I love your energy. Um, you know, I'm confident in the asset. It was only like $250,000. She needed a $50,000 down payment. So it was a small amount of her worth to be able to invest. Folks take a chance on a secured investment opportunity with somebody that she'd never met. And I went to Toronto to discuss the deal and we talked for like three hours. And then I was like, oh my gosh, I got to get going. We haven't even brought up the property. And she's like, oh, I'm in. And I realized that it had nothing, it really it didn't have anything to do with the property. It had things to do with the property. That's how we had connected because she wanted the property. But it was like, she wanted to know that if I was in the middle of a problem, I had problem solving skills, that I wasn't just going to shut down and, and shy away from a situation that I was going to be like, this is shitty. What do we do next? How do we deal with this kind of problem? So, you know, it's, it's, um, so the bad ones were early on. So three to leave before the first one said yes. And then it just got easier after that, that, you know, people would call and I would hang up the phone and Larry goes, what's going on? And I was like, she said, yes. And he goes, it's only been 20 minutes. And I'm like, I know because I was able to say the right things because I was now had a track record of what I was doing. I think another really key point in my growth was I was coachable and I kept saying, I have coaches. Let me go and ask. I'm not afraid to ask my mentor. That's a great question. And, you know, again, just leading with that, you don't have to know all the answers is actually a real big point for JV. When we're talking about joint ventures, um, you know, I think a lot of people and the joint venture, like the concept of it is great. You know, utilize OPM, you know, bring in partners, aggressive growth. I think a lot of newer investors, especially, they struggle to attract the joint venture partners, right? So I know you're going out to these events. Um, you had confidence in the deals, but there must be more to it, I guess, is, is what I'm wondering, right? It's like, how, how would a newer investor in today's market, especially where, you know, you're not getting maybe as big of a home run of a burr, right? Um, you know, there is more risk in today's market. How do you go about attracting and, and you know, bringing people onto deals with you? Find a way to help the many. First, service to many leads to greatness. Zig Ziglar. Okay. Think about this for a minute. I didn't go around saying, Mandy wants to be a multimillionaire. Do you want to help me be a multimillionaire? Come and buy into this property because I want to be a multimillionaire. If you come and help, if you come into this property, I grow. No. I started studying human behavior back in 2015, early 2015. Okay. And I would ask, what is it that they want out of it? They being a potential joint venture partner. Do they want security for their future, for their children's future? Do they want supplemental cash flow? Do they just want a great bird to be able to pay down their HELOC again and continue to own an asset? Do they want to be in BC and they never want to even know what their freaking property looks like? Okay? What do they want? 
and how can I solve their problem with my property? Okay. And that's not how most people go about this. They say, I've got a great property. What do you mean you don't want to do the deal with me? Because you're not listening. You haven't even asked them what they want out of a deal. You don't know what their risk tolerance is. So I've got one JV partner and they're lovely, but they've got an autistic um, handicapped child. And we bought a fourplex for their son's retirement plan. Like talk about choosing your body. Okay. So I didn't say this is about an ROI. This is about a cash flow. Oh my gosh, this is going to be a great property. We're going to do this because that's not what he wanted. He wanted a property that's going to be there in 60 years. So I listened to what he wanted and I matched him to a property that was exactly what he wanted. He bought that for 500,000 five years ago, and it's now worth $1.2 million. The strategy for that property matches what he wanted. Please listen to that. Like, I think that's the key to this right now. People are trying to fit a square box into a round hole, but they're not even asking the questions of what the JV partners want. And so they're just trying to say, this is what I want. So let's try and match it. Okay. I think it's really important to understand the needs of the JV partner. What are their pain point risk tolerance? What are their concerns? And try and match a deal to that. Yeah. Very important point there. I remember when I was uh, raising capital at the beginning for my own personal portfolio, like if I was to put money in, I was like, I need all my money out of the deal. But if I was only looking for those deals, like really you'd be buying maybe one property a year because most don't fit that criteria unless there's like appreciation, which is what we've seen. But when I was pitching to JV partners, they're like, oh, any good deals, Austin? I'm like, no, no, no. Six, six months, Austin, no, 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 nothing good, right? And then it's just, I'm, I sat down, spoke with them. I was like, okay, I mean, like, this is what I'm seeing. It's like, oh no, not, those numbers look pretty good. It's like, oh, so this is what you're looking for. Okay, like I get it, right? And then I started, I started leading by saying like, what's I mean, what's your ideal investment strategy? What are you looking to get out of this? Like, is, is it a buy and hold? Are you looking to burn it? Are you more concerned with like great cash flow? Like, what, what do you want? Right. And then I started picking exactly what you're saying, picking properties that fit their needs. But so many times we hold ourselves to a standard to find a certain deal for ourselves. And that has to be applicable to everyone. Right. Like, that's how a lot of investors think, which again, not really the case. Now I want to get into the process of, of JVs because I know that you probably kind of have like a rule book where you start with the JV avatar, start marketing, social media branding. Let's say someone brand you, I guess I'm taking advantage of this as a coaching call for you guys out there. So you're welcome. But someone brand you like, man, you want to get into JVs. I've read like three or four investment books. Um, so I know the basics of real estate, running numbers, so on and so forth. Like what do I need to do from here so I can get my first JV partner by the end of the year? Um, all of those things that that person just asked me was all about how they can grow. I need to know what they're willing to do and offer, um, to JV partners. You know, are you willing to do the work? Are you willing to travel to where the numbers make sense? Like, what are you really willing to do to be able to, to attract that JV partner? Um, I want someone who, like, we did three deals on our own, four deals on our own, almost five before we were really starting to attract partners. So you are attracting, listen to that word, attract. This isn't just like you deserve a partner. You know, have you ever heard that Jim Rohn um, little statement? And he said, you know, people show up at, at harvest time and they feel like they deserve a harvest, okay? 
So I'm kind of, I'm going to go back to Austin. That's kind of the way that that new investor is. They deserve a joint venture. And like just a minute here, if you want to harvest, you got to plant in the spring and you need to hold the garden. You need to pick the weeds and you need to monitor your freaking garden before you deserve a harvest. Okay. And that is the way that it is with these joint ventures. So are you helping other investors? Are you getting experience on job sites? Are you freaking wholesaling? Are you cold calling? What are you doing to be able to plant and monitor your garden to be able to deserve a JV partner at the end? Okay. And I think that, um, I mean, maybe that sounds harsh, but I think there's a lot of people that just like, well, I read a book, so why can't I attract a JV partner? I don't know, because you haven't done anything. Like, where's your skin in the game? Where is your blood, sweat, tears, stress? I remember um, we closed on one deal and I had a friend over and I was pacing. He said he'd never seen me pace before. I'm like, we had three mortgages. It was like a freaking juggling act for me to be able to close on this property. Me, on my own, like just Larry and I. Now that, that deal helped me with multiple opportunities later on because I had done it because I knew that I could figure it out, that I knew I had the power team around me to answer the right questions because I had learned a whole bunch of different stuff. But if you just show up and you think that you deserve a JV by the end of the year, I'm going to say you haven't put in the time, the effort, all that kind of stuff. I think that's so true. I think a lot of people just feel entitled to it. Um, I, I like what you said as well about, you know, just having putting the skin into the game and so on. I, I want to ask you is, are you in the business of helping people find real estate properties? Or are you in the business of buying real estate properties? I guess like one thing that I thought that was interesting about your model is you start with a joint venture partner. It sounds like you start with a joint venture partner first, right? Um, versus a lot of people, we go out, we hunt for the property that we want to buy, we buy it, and then we look for a joint venture model, uh, joint venture partner, right? So, um, you know, if you were to explain your business, which way would you do it? Like, are you JV partner? Yep. I'm in the business of helping people diversify their investment portfolios with real estate. So I want somebody who's like, yeah, I got some cash. I got some bonds. I got some stocks, but I don't, I don't have time for this real estate thing, but I know I need it. Um, I've heard about it. The pension funds are doing it. Everybody's doing it, but I don't know where to start. Let me help you. Let me help you diversify your investment portfolio with real estate. And this is a human game. I've had three JV partners go through cancer treatments. And like one of their comments, they lost a child. And their comment was the only thing I didn't have to worry about was my real estate. Now you know why I'm doing this. I'm doing this to be the active partner so that other people can have the benefit of a diversification in real estate, but not have to have the headspace for any of these things. If anything, I'm like, tell me when you leave the country. Just in case there's a problem with our asset, I need to know that I can make the decision or that, you know, it's going to be a little bit of a delay to be able to get a hold of you. Mm. Wow. Because you've been through a couple like micro cycles, you could call it, right? Like, little, like mini market cycles, right? Um, where 2017 or so, if you, if you were doing JVs, then great time, deals galore, deals were everywhere, right? 2018, 19 started to heat up. 2020 was great time to be buying real estate, right? Obviously, 2021, I'm assuming it was a little bit harder, right? So how has your business changed over these years, right? Because I'm assuming at various points, similar to a lot of us, there's either an abundance of deals and not enough joint venture partners or vice versa, right? And then also, how did your team grow along the way as you have more and more and more properties 
I'm sure there are some pain points there. <laughs> yeah. So 2022, I'm naming the, the year of the JV. Okay? I think there is an abundance of capital. Okay. There's an abundance of capital. That's actually an affirmation that I have for myself. There's capital everywhere looking for secure places to be able to be invested. Okay. I am a secure place for it to be able to be invested. Early 2022, we had two, if not three, four, or five um, investment companies, people, whatever, um, where everybody, you know, there's a lot of prom notes, a lot of unsecured lending, and people really got put in their face uh, of, you know, the risks that are potentially involved with real estate. And I looked around and I was like, huh. My model seems really damn secure right now because all of my JVs are secured on the asset. They own the asset. They own the asset at 80% loan to value with cash flowing profit. So what am I looking for in 2022? So, and how has my model changed? If I was Mandy starting out, not in 2017 or 2014, but right now, I would be looking for assets that make sense as they are. Make sense as they are, not home runs, you know, I don't get out of bed for less than 30%, which really means that my JV partner minimum return on investment is 15%. And if somebody wants a higher return, that's great. There's this few companies, you should go and see about them. But if you want a secure investment without a speculative outcome, come and see what I have. Okay. Um, you know, maybe you're buying a fourplex and one unit is vacant. Great. Buy it with one unit vacant. Turn over one unit. That means that the numbers make sense with three units as they are and one with current market rents. Then you can go in and maybe have a you know, conversation, maybe somebody is not paying, maybe somebody is messy, and you can start to maybe slowly turn over those, those other units. But buy a property just because it's a good property. Don't try and make a property great, speculate, oh, I think this is going to be worth what? What do you think it's going to be worth? Nobody has a crystal ball. So why speculate on what it's going to be worth when you just know that you can buy properties that make sense as they are? So I've gone from two to four units, which is a genius method, genius financial um, strategy to be able to get investors in nice loan to value, very liquid, very versatile investments to be able to refinance quickly. And often, I do suggest people start off with two to four units. Um, we've got 104 units, 104 properties in our portfolio right now. It is literally a logistical nightmare. And so I'm not doing small stuff anymore. But to touch on where Austin, you've kind of gone earlier, and I did share this in the Rise Live event that we did a couple of years ago, pre-COVID. Um, you know, you ask investors for what you believe is your net worth, your self-worth. So if you're asking somebody because you want to be able to get all their money back, you have a worth issue of being able to return people's capital quickly. Maybe you only want to be able to borrow $50,000, $100,000. But as you grow, your worth grows and your ability to confidently tell an investment partner that, yeah, they're going to leave $100,000, $200,000 invested. That doesn't mean it's gone. It doesn't mean that there's not a great return on investment. But this is the model for the year of the market that we're entering into. So now I'm doing corporate share purchases. So we're doing, like, you know, let's say um, $100,000, um, 10 investors got a million dollars and we are owning a share. They're owning a share of a corporation. The corporation is, you know, one, two, three main street. And we have a 50, 50 ownership of that corporation. They are still um, associated on title. So we actually set up their shares for benefits of tax purposes because of 
all the experience that we have. So it's a very secure way to be able to get in. But now they're also being able to get in. Maybe these are people that, you know, have a little bit issues with qualifying because they're self-employed or whatnot. And let's even be clear, it's not even just for people who have issues qualifying. Like, I don't know if anybody's tried to qualify for a mortgage lately, but it's not fun. It's not easy. They are raking you through the leaves. They're asking you question after question after question. So we go into these large corporate mortgages and it's like, you know, you just need to be a good standing citizen and you're approved to be, um, you know, as a as a beneficiary on this mortgage, I bear the majority of the qualifying. So it's actually a, another way for people to get into real estate without the qualification side that I 100% required for my previous joint ventures. Well, okay. So, hold on. There's a lot there. So is that basically a GPLP structure or is this now a completely different structure that we're talking about? Nope. It's still a joint venture. Uh, except it's a corporate share. So we we just own a corporation together. That's all. We just own a corporation. And the only asset that the corporation owns is 123 Main Street. That's it. It's not a GPLP. Nope. Same model. When I used to say to my JVs, it's a 50-50 JV structure. You put in all the capital upon a refinance. You get all your capital back before we split any equity. Same model. Exact same model. And except these are larger buildings, so they're less maneuverable. They're not as fast. There's not as many of them. So it might be three to five years to get your capital back. Whereas when I was starting out, um, you know, that is definitely a change in 2022. I don't want investors to tell anybody anything less than 12 months before a refinance. 12 months. Do not promise a refinance in three to six months. I don't care if you can do it. There are too many unknowns, too many variables. I encourage people 12 months to do a refi. And if you can do it in nine, you look genius. But if you promise 12 and you do 12, great. Okay. But um, so that's a, so that's one of the differences between small multis, two to four units and large multis. It's a, it is longer to be able to get your capital back. Different JV avatar. (laughs) And that JV avatar is really people who have a tremendous amount of capital and are truly looking just for diversification. It's like, you know how people put 100 or 200 in equities, they might put 100 or 200 in real estate and leave it there. Is that, is that correct? Um, no, there are a lot of people who have um, some capital, but they don't have the stomach. They don't have the stomach for, do I do variable? Do I do fixed? What if the property values don't go up? What if the appraisal doesn't come in? Large multi-buildings are calculations, cap rates, income, you know, if you have a tenant turnover and your rent goes from 800 to 1200, this isn't a guess. This is a calculated return. So it's like being part of something larger than they couldn't do on their own. But some of these small stuff and some of these cowboys that are the new investors coming in and offering, you know, boom, boom, boom. I'm going to touch on wholesalers a little bit and and just, it can be a cautious thing because people are like 85,000 below that market value. And you're like, which market value? Are you talking yesterday's market value? We're talking today's market value. So, you know, when there's people that are, you know, getting into these properties, I think it's really important. So there's my, so my JV avatar, they're not sure. Like that residential market, it's very fluctuating. Apartment buildings doesn't fluctuate. Okay. Apartment buildings are full. You know, small duplexes, the creation of triplexes, you know, do you do that? Do you not? There, there's some variables in that, um, that, you know, so they don't have to be 
high rolling people. If somebody's got two to $3 million, they're doing a deal on their own. Like we're just doing a 50, 50 JV and they're the only partner that's coming on because they don't like multiple people. So, um, so yeah. I can see the aptitude, the, the alert for kind of even like experience or mid season, like investors, right? Cause I think if you look at where the government's kind of indicating that they want individuals to move towards with the CMHC policies, changes in amortizations, affordable housing initiatives, all that kind of stuff. It's all focused on the larger commercial buildings, right? Um, and then you look at what's happening in the small single family duplex, triplex, fourplex space. It's, you know, potentially 30 year uh, or 30% down payments, like reduced amortizations, basal three guidelines, like a whole bunch of stuff, right? So, um, and then the other side of it is as much as everyone would love to get into apartment buildings, like Mandy said, there's not a whole lot of inventory, right? So a lot easier to go out and buy a single family house or a duplex. Just pick one off, off the market. It might not be the best deal if you pick it off the market, but versus an apartment building, you got to like analyze and you got to know like multiple cities and so on, right? So that leads me into my question for you, Mandy, is, you know, A, growing to around 100 properties, which, you know, means you have that many, like way, way more than that in tenants. And then now also jumping into apartment buildings, uh, where you geographically constrained to certain areas? Did you have certain guidelines like where you focus on Ontario maybe or Southern Ontario or whatever it is? And then B, how did you grow your team out to be able to target all these different areas? I'm assuming you had to go pretty far out. So I definitely have a belief in partnerships and together we can accomplish more, right? So I found experts in areas like Kingston and I gave up a share of my 50-50 to be able to work with an expert in that industry who's on the ground, who has the connections. So yeah, my 50% was divided, but I have somebody in Hamilton. I had somebody in Aurelia and we went up to Sudbury and we built a massive portfolio up in Sudbury, started our own property management company. So there's definitely that, like, um, what's that cartoon character that like starts like really, really slow and then goes super fast. You know, starting a property management company in Sudbury is painful. It's a lot of work. There's a, it's intense upfront. You got to build, you're not only building the portfolio, you're building the um, construction company to renovate the units and then this property management company and attracting the joint venture. So for us, the end of 2020 into 2021 was a crazy, crazy busy year. But I just believe in, so I mean, um, even with the share that I have given away to people, like I am okay to give up portions of equity because I actually have more by giving away pieces. And I think that is a key point to the JV model. People will tell me, and we can have these you know, arguments. There's probably two or three people that have, I'll call them, have a higher net worth than me being a flipper and doing everything on their own with no JV partners compared to myself and my mentors who all have JV partners. So we've got a significant portfolio, but we uh, only own a portion of it, uh, you know, uh, an equity position of it and joint ventures. You can have more by doing joint ventures than you can by doing, having a hundred percent on your own. You want to have a hundred percent of the pie, go ahead. I would rather have 25 or 50% of a pie, but I'd rather 10 pies. Maybe that's not good for my caloric intake, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you're also benefiting from a higher lever point as well, right? Like you're able to a control to more total dollars under management which then eventually over time gets paid down, right? And appreciation is now compounded over more dollars and assets, right? So I think that makes a lot of sense from the team perspective. So you, you have strategic partnerships, it sounds like in different, different cities. Um, 
I'm sure a lot of it still falls on you. Like just bookkeeping is it's like a pain in the ass for me. Like I, 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 still I have a bookkeeper. It was one of the first people I hired onto my team was a bookkeeper. So I have a bookkeeper. I have an accountant. We just, uh, 2021, I hired an executive assistant, but she's only one day a week. So I, I don't want to paint a picture that she's there beside me five days a week. Um, I had a social media person. They're not around anymore. Like it's very transformational. Like there's, you know, if it works and if it's needed, then I have it. And if I don't, then I don't, I had two property managers. I only have one. Well, we've sold 20 units in our Midland portfolio. So we're down to one property manager right now. We've got no vacant units. There's no units that need to be leased in my Midland portfolio. So we don't need a leasing agent. Like, I think it's just, it's good to be able to say when you need it, hire it, pay for it. But if it's not like a lifetime relationship and that person dwindles away or isn't needed anymore, I think it's okay just to be able to say that was for a reason, not for a lifetime. And you hire as needed and let them go as needed. Same with construction companies or contractors. You know, people are so worried. They're like, oh, I need to keep my contractor busy. Or you don't. Like, keep them busy when you've got the properties to keep them busy. And if you don't, you let them go. And if you find another property, then you're kind of back to the drawing board. It's a very lean operation. That's pretty impressive. That's basically yourself, an accountant and bookkeeper. And it sounds like you have a couple of like contracted type services when needed. So that's great. Uh, Mandy, at this point in the podcast, we'd like to ask our guests two questions. I think we got a good rundown of how you got started, how you've grown and, and really what your business model is today as well, which is super inspiring for a lot of new investors. But um, where do you see yourself five years from now? Um, still hanging around Midland. Um, we love our house. It will be renovated. A lean crew still. I'm probably more the same. There'll be some significant apartment buildings in our portfolio. We're looking at a 24 unit right now in Toronto. So I mean, like, we're definitely looking at bigger stuff for models. Um, I can see myself on stage inspiring people, the benefits of real estate. So definitely some public speaking. Um, yeah, no, I'll be an empty nester in five years. Cross fingers crossed. <laughs> Awesome. And I guess for, for newer investors today, especially those looking to follow like in your footsteps or something very similar, right? Doing these um, under four units of joint ventures, et cetera. Um, what do you see as being the major risk in today's market? Could be economical, political, something that people are doing wrong, OSC, whatever you want to talk about here. <laughs> yeah. You know what? I take 100% responsibility for the outcome of my life. So we can say interest rates are going to change. The market is going to change. Financing regulations are going to change. We're going to be like, yeah, the world is continually changing. And the only person that I have ability to you know, be in control of is myself. And so I just, I go at this as, um, you know, um, what's the biggest risk is that you aren't being true to you. If a deal makes sense and you would put your own money, then it's definitely a property that you can attract a joint venture to. But if you are stretching and you're outside of a comfort zone, then it's probably not a deal that you should do. Now we can enter in 2017, 2020 or 2022. And I think the same model applies. So, I mean, I really just want people to be authentic if the numbers, and I mean, you say numbers work, but I mean, the numbers have to work for you. You have to, and it drives me crazy. Would you put 250,000 if you had your own money onto this deal? Well, maybe. No, not maybe. If you would do the deal, goddamn, go and ask an investor to come alongside. This isn't like my story. The, the risk is that somebody's like, I'm willing to go if a joint venture comes with me. But if a joint venture doesn't want to come with me, then I don't want to do the deal. I say, I'm doing the deal. Are you coming with me? 
Okay. Um, and so being adaptable. So a risk is being in a box is being um, very closed minded and not being able to ask yourself, how can I close on this deal? What are the various options of financing I do have available? Who do I know in my Rolodex that I can ask these questions to? Being humble, being able to make mistakes. So um, that that would be a risk is if you're not able to adapt and face fear head on um, and know that you are going to make mistakes and congratulations. And I'm happy to be able to get a text or a message to say, hey, Mandy, today I failed. I'd be like, awesome. Congratulations. What did you learn and how are you moving forward? Um, so, yeah, that's that was a big answer. But the risk is all on you. Love it. Love it. Accountability to its max. Extreme accountability. Mandy, uh, it was absolutely a pleasure having you on the podcast. Always is a great time to chat with you. There's always tons to learn. And it seems like even at your stage where a lot of people, if I had 100 properties, I would sit back and chill. You're still like, you're still grinding away, scaling your portfolio, growing your team, getting the systems in place. I absolutely love it. If people want to connect with you, learn with you, or even partner with you, how could they reach out to you? Mandy at mandybrenham.com is my email comes direct to me. And uh, you know what, it really just goes to show yeah, that I'm not in this for a number in my portfolio. I'm not in this for a dollar amount in my bank account. You know, this is an amount of people of lives that want to change and secure we more than ever, please my pledge to people, I need people's help in the joint venture space. I really do. There's more money than there are active, confident investors. And so if you're willing to step up to be able to say, Mandy, I'll help with some of that JV capital, then these are the things that you need to be able to do to put forth because that capital needs us. They need us in secure investments now more than ever. So uh, I can't shy away right now. There's more people that need my help than ever. Love it. Love it. So you guys, all of Mandy's contact information will be down in the show notes below. Again, like she has, if I'm not mistaken, you have your own show podcast as well. So make sure to check that out as well if you enjoyed the content here today. And until next time, everyone, invest smarter and live better. Take care, all.